Thank you, Sally. Let's pray that God would give us understanding of his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, you caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our instruction. And so we pray, help us to listen and hold fast to what you teach us today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Because John the Baptist is such a well-known figure in the gospel story, it can be easy for us to forget just how strange he really was. I mean, who would you suggest is the modern-day equivalent of John the Baptist? Perhaps he's a, a preacher or pastor in some odd Baptist denomination. Or perhaps he's a, a hipster church planter with a, a striking and unusual style. Or maybe, maybe he's some sort of edgy TikToker with you know, a, a niche following. Or perhaps he's kind of an offbeat cult leader. I mean, who are we talking about here as we, we look at John the Baptist? I reckon that if you or I met John the Baptist today, we would find him, we would think that he, this here is a homeless person who regularly stands up on a milk crate in Hay Street Mall and yells at people about the fire of hell. That's the kind of thing I think we're dealing with here. He appears in verse 3, preaching in the wilderness, which is a pretty strange place to plant a church. And when he meets people, he asks them to come down to the river with him so that he can push them under the water. And then when the crowds do come in verse 7, he calls them names and publicly disrespects them. Verse 17, his message is incredibly politically incorrect, unqualified fire and brimstone. And in the other accounts of Jesus' life, of John's life, I should say, we're told that he wore camel's hair and had a leather belt, that his diet consisted entirely of things that he could scavenge, bugs and honey. John was a weirdo. I mean, I imagine that when people met him, they thought he was a weirdo. We might kind of say in polite company that he was just a bit eccentric. But, you know, this is the person that we've come to know as John the Baptist, or sometimes Jack the Dipper, just to make the joke that all preachers are contractually obliged to make when preaching on John the Baptist. And yet for all of John the Baptist's eccentric weirdness, the crowds came to him in huge number. It was so politically dangerous that Herod the Tetrarch imprisoned and eventually beheaded him. And John is someone that even Jesus thought incredibly highly of. Even Jesus came to be baptised by John. And every gospel writer makes sure that we know about him. And so it's the ministry of John the Baptist that we're going to hear about today. I've got three things that I want to talk about today. The man from verses 1 to 3, the message from verses 7 to 14, and then the Messiah he pointed towards. And it's all there in the outline that you would have received. And please do keep your Bibles open. So let's talk some more about the man, John the Baptist. Come back with me to, to verse 1. Uh, notice the attention to detail here. It's the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate is governor of Judea, etc., etc. All of these details can and have been validated from outside of the Bible. And so we're reminded here, as we were just a few weeks ago in chapter 1, that this is history that we're reading, not fairy tale. Uh, this is not once upon a time. This is not a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. This is the first century, it's about 30 AD, it's Israel and it's Palestine. But I want you to know too that it's a time of great darkness. It is a time of moral degradation and political chaos. The reign of Tiberius, for example, was one that was marked by treachery and cruelty. Pontius Pilate was a terrible tyrant to the Jewish people. 
and the morally bankrupt dynasty of Herod the Great is still in power through his sons, Herod and Philip. There are actually, by the way, there, there are four generations of Herods in the Bible, which is terribly confusing, uh, but really it's a testimony to the enduring arrogance of this family that they keep naming their sons after themselves. In other words, something is deeply wrong in God's people. God's people, they're not free. They're, again, slaves oppressed by a foreign power. Their own leaders pay no heed to God and to his word. Something is terribly wrong and change is needed. And so the word of God comes to John, son of Zechariah in verse 2. John doesn't wake up one morning and think, you know what? I'm going to make an impact. I'm going to be a public speaker. I'm going to wear weird clothes and eat weird food and go to a weird place and preach a weird message. No. The word of God came to John and he went. John is the last and the greatest of all of the Old Testament prophets about whom we're also told that the word of God came to them, to Micah, to Jeremiah, to Isaiah, to Ezekiel, and here last of all to John. And the word of God came to John in the wilderness. And the place is very important. The word of God did not come to John in a, you know, a, a huge city convention center seating 12,000 people with air conditioning and undercover parking. The word of God did not come to John in the temple in Jerusalem. The word of God came to John in the wilderness, in the desert, near the River Jordan. A hot, uninhabitable depression, wild in every way and removed from all civilization, just like Hay Street Mall. But it's deeper than that. When Israel was rescued by God out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, how did they enter into the land that, of blessing that God had promised them? Well, they entered through the River Jordan, if you'll remember from Joshua chapter 3. They had to pass through the waters to come into God's blessing. And so where does John preach? By the River Jordan. And what does he ask people to do? To pass through the waters. To be baptised. To enter into the land of promised blessing once again. To start over again in their relationship with God. Renewed and refreshed and relying on God like God's people always should have been. To enter into the land of promise of blessing again, but now with right hearts. John is calling for the whole nation to change, the whole nation to start over. And he's doing it one heart, one baptism at a time. And to hear that message in that place at that time, the crowds came from Judea, from Jerusalem, from the whole region. They came from everywhere and they came in huge numbers. I think there are two types of preachers that attract attention in our world. There's those who simply preach what people's itching ears want to hear, who will say things like, yeah, God is love. He has a wonderful plan for your life. He doesn't mind how you live. He doesn't mind your sexual ethics. He doesn't mind you ignoring those parts of his word that you don't like. And those kinds of preachers, they will draw a crowd for a time until people realise that they've actually got nothing to offer and little to say, until people realise that they aren't being transformed. And then there's the other sort of preacher, those who speak with the authority of God's word and people want to listen, not necessarily because it's fun and easy, 
Not necessarily because the preacher is eloquent or interesting or even all that good at public speaking. But because they know that God's word is being preached and they are being transformed. If I ever become the first type of preacher, not the second, please do let me know. You don't want to hear from me every Sunday. I'm not worth getting out of bed for, I can assure you that. I have nothing to say. But we do want to hear from the Word of God. And so what does the Word of God that comes to John say? What is John's message? Uh, John preaches, verse 3, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Have a look down at, at verse 7. This is one of his typical sermons. You brood of vipers... Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Can you imagine if those were the first words that I'd said to you this morning? You brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes. One of the team dared me to do it, but I didn't have the guts. Uh, you know, but the key idea, I think, is repentance. That's the idea that's there in, in verse 3. And again, it's the idea that's there in verse 7, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. There is, in John, all of John's message, there is this clear imperative to repent, to change. God wanted everyone who, sorry, well, sorry, God wanted everyone who heard John, I should say, to change the way that they were relating to him. A change is needed. Change in this whole nation is needed. But it doesn't begin with the political situation. It doesn't begin with the structures and, and systems of their society. It begins in their hearts. Change is needed in their relationship with God. And this change, this needed repentance, has an urgency to it because someone and something is coming. Uh, that someone is the Lord that John is preparing the way for. And when the Lord comes, we are told, he is angry. He is angry with the way that they are living. He comes to judge. The wrath of God is coming, says John. So repent now before it's too late, lest the one coming arrive when you are still unprepared to meet him. You see, John is... He's not mincing his words here, is he? The wrath of God is coming. And that's the point that he's making in, in verse 9 as well, where, where he said, The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Uh, that's a, a common Old Testament image. You can find it in Isaiah 10 and Hosea 10 and Jeremiah 3. And the fire that's being referred to here is the fire of God's wrath. The axe is already at the root of the tree because the day of God's wrath is near. His holy justice is coming. Now, by this stage, some people might say, oh, I don't know that I like this guy, John. He's too blunt. He's too direct. He's rude. He's dogmatic. Preachers shouldn't talk like this anymore. Evan, can we just, can we skip over to the Jesus bit that I know is coming because it always is? Can we talk about that? Less fire and brimstone, more love and forgiveness. That's sometimes what we want, isn't it? Here's a quote that I like. Well would it be for the church of Christ 
if it possessed more plain-speaking ministers like John the Baptist, a morbid dislike to strong language, an excessive fear of giving offence, a constant flinching from directness and plain speaking are unhappily too much the characteristics of modern Christian pulpits. Do you know when that was written? 1856. It's a quote that's from uh, J.C. Ryle, and it, and it ends with, people in the 19th century don't like to hear it straight. Nothing changes. It's not different now. My friends, there is a wrath that is coming. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Are you ready to stand before God? Before he arrives? Or are you unprepared to meet him? So what should we do? Well, John says, he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And that is an interesting little phrase, isn't it? Because it reminds us that repentance is, is it's not just about confessing our sins and, and receiving forgiveness, although it is about those things. But there should also be a change in the pattern of our life that ensure, ensues from, from genuine repentance. Sincere confession, yes, but then new choices and new results and, and new disciplines. True repentance bears fruit. John says that it can be seen as well as heard. And repentance is something that John says each one of us must do. It's not enough to say that Abraham is our father. It's not enough to say, no, I'm okay because actually, you know, my mum repented. Or or my, my, my grandparent repented. Or, you know, it's not enough to say that someone else in my family has done it for me. It's not enough to say, but, you know, I've always come to church and, you know, my whole family is Anglican. And don't you know that my grandfather was a bishop? You can't say those sorts of things. Hearts matter, not heritage. You cannot flee from the coming wrath by clinging to our family background. We cannot flee from the coming wrath by adding a little religion to our life, by trying to pull up our socks and do a little better. We must repent. And that means real change. You know, for most of us here, our life will consist of of two volumes. Uh, Volume one, where we served ourselves and we loved ourselves. And volume two, where having discovered the coming wrath and having discovered the wonder of the gospel in which forgiveness can be found, instead we, we change, we devote our lives to serving God and his son, Jesus Christ. Is there a second volume to your life? Repentance means more than the sorrow of being found out. It means more than simply regret about previous bad choices. It means a change in the very direction of our lives. Repentance is a radical turning away from self as first to a life where God is first, running back to him as our loving father, submitting to him and and reveling in his forgiving embrace. And that will result in a radically changed life, radically generous with clothes and food and material possessions in verse 11, radically committed to justice and to fairness in verse 13, radically content with what God has given us 
in verse 14. Radically committed to loving God and loving neighbour. Real repentance results in real fruit. And repentance is at the very heart of John's message. And arguably, it's even more urgent now than it was then. Because the wrath of God is even closer now than it was when John was speaking. And so I don't want us to leave here this morning without having asked ourselves the question, have we repented? Is there the fruit of radical repentance in our lives, the result of no longer living for ourselves, but living entirely for our Creator, the one who loves us and the one who invites us back through the death and the resurrection of His Son? And who, when we do return, welcomes us with a warm, loving, forgiving embrace. Have we repented? Because this call to repentance is it's at the very heart of John's message. But it's not all of John's message. It's only actually one dimension of it. There is another dimension. John also unrelentingly points to the one who will come after him, to Jesus, the Messiah. Some people in verse 15 were even wondering whether John was the one. Was, was he the Messiah who had been promised? But John knew that he wasn't. John knew that he was nothing more than the messenger boy. He was nothing more than the support act. He had to warm up the crowd before the main event. And in this respect, I think that the concern of John the Baptist is the same as the concern of Luke, the author of this gospel, to show us Jesus. Because whilst repentance might be this chapter's kind of major theme, I don't think that the major character of this chapter is John. It is, in fact, the one John points to. It is Jesus. And I think very quickly that there are five things in particular that this chapter tells us about Jesus. Five things that John and Luke want us to know about him. Firstly, they want us to know that he is the Lord who is coming. Have a look again there at verse 4, would you? That quote from the book of Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. Luke reminds us that the prophet Isaiah had predicted the ministry of John the Baptist 800 years before it happens. And said that the ministry of John the Baptist would be a ministry of preparing for the coming of the Lord God himself. And the word Lord there doesn't indicate that when Jesus comes that he's, he's just kind of some VIP, that he's just some especially significant person. It signifies that Jesus is God come in the flesh. The Lord comes amongst us to bring the forgiveness of sins and, and the tender mercy of our God that John's own father, Zechariah, prophesied back in chapter 1. But secondly, John is also at pains to remind us that Jesus is the one who is more worthy than he. Verse 16, John answered them all, I baptise you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John wants his hearers to be out on the lookout 
for the one who deserves their attention much more than he does, who deserves their reverence and even their worship. And not just by a little bit. John says, I'm not even worthy to undo his shoes. As remarkable as John is, he does not want us to see him. He wants us to see Jesus. Because thirdly, when Jesus comes, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Uh, Jesus, like John, is a baptizer. But Jesus' baptism is with much greater power. Those who come to Christ for baptism will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And of course, it is the day of Pentecost, which you read about in the early chapters of Acts, where we see how spectacularly this promise is fulfilled. And Christ's baptizing with the Holy Spirit, it continues from that day until now. All over the world, Jesus continues to pour out his Holy Spirit on people who come to him in faith and call him Lord. As he draws them into God's family and as he invites them into their internal inheritance. And that's what he's done for us as well. He's poured out his spirit upon us. And then the fourth thing there, the one who comes after John is also, in verse 17, a harvester. And that is, he has a role in the judgment of God. A huge part of John's message was this warning about how the wrath of God is coming. But what becomes very clear is, that the day of wrath is near, according to John, because Jesus is near. It's important that we don't miss this because we tend to associate Jesus uh, and his coming to this world with salvation as well we should. But we must also remember uh, you know, that it's not the whole of the truth, is it? The coming of Christ to earth also means that the day of judgment is nearer than it was before. Christ's kingship is marked by love and rescue, that's true, but it's also marked by holy justice. And that we must not believe in one without the other. Clearly, John did not. And that's why his declaration about the coming Messiah leads to an urgent and direct call for repentance. Because, verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Last week, Simeon predicted that the child Jesus would be the, the rising and the falling of many, that Jesus would divide people. But here it becomes clear that that division is eternal. Ultimately, that is what Jesus will do on the last day, on that great and final day of judgment. He will bring in the harvests. And the Lord Jesus will divide between the valuable wheat that has long been waiting for his return and the worthless chaff that he will burn up with a fire that never ceases. And this, again, is definitely not a picture of Jesus that people find comfortable. This is that direct speech that no one has liked ever since 1856. We're only a couple of chapters from the beginning of Luke's gospel, and yet already, already that, that cute picture of a little baby boy in a manger who would save the world is long gone. Now he's a grown man with a pitchfork in his hand, 
separating the harvest, the wheat from the chaff. It turns out that the Bible does have someone in it with a pitchfork, like those old cartoons. But it's the Lord Jesus who's wielding it. The wheat he gathers into his barn. The chaff is thrown into the fire that never ceases. And this is why repentance is such an important theme in this chapter. The Messiah is coming. The Lord is coming to judge. And so get ready for that day by repenting, says John. Because the wheat and the chaff in this picture, they're people. People who repent and people who refuse to repent. People who receive a welcome into the kingdom and peoples whose destiny is hell. And that is not a comfortable picture. But if you want to see Jesus for who he really is, if you don't want to be one of those who picks and chooses from what God's word says, then we must accept that John tells us that Jesus is God's harvester. But not only that, Jesus is God's son. Because that's what the final paragraph of this chapter tells us in verses 21 and and 22. Uh, When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven opened up and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Heaven opens and this dove comes down and a voice from heaven is heard. And can you imagine the moment? The voice of God. And it says, this is my son. Do you see him? This is my son. Do you love him? This is my son. Will you listen to him? And he brings me great pleasure. It would have been a breathtaking moment. For all of a spectacle that the ministry of John was, this would have been extraordinary. And that moment when that voice from heaven speaks, it's actually a quote from the Old Testament. It's actually a quote from two places in the Old Testament. One part, the first part from Psalm 2 and the second part from Isaiah 42. And Psalm 2 is that that great psalm of, of God's king, God's chosen king, a descendant of David who will come to rule and to judge all the earth. And the one whom God is well pleased with is the servant of Isaiah 42, the suffering servant who ultimately dies for the sin of the people to rescue them. And the voice from heaven is making it unmistakably clear that Jesus is that one. He is the one who has come to rule. He is the one who has come to judge. He is the one who has come to bring God's justice to earth. But he's also the one who's come to save. And that salvation will come through his suffering and ultimately through his death. The voice from heaven is making it unmistakably clear that Jesus is far greater, far more significant, far more important than John. John is the messenger, but Jesus is the king who will save. John can warn about the judgment, but Jesus is the judge. John can even announce and even hint at salvation, but Jesus, by his crucifixion, will save. 
he will bring the free gift of eternal life, of a new and right relationship with God. What a glorious vision of Christ this chapter actually presents to us. And of course, John's ministry of, of pointing to Christ is, is linked with his ministry of calling for repentance. They're both the same thing. They're, they're both intrinsic parts of, of what John has to say. Because there is no need for repentance unless the judgment of God is near. And seeing the majestic glory of Jesus is what produces the best kind of repentance. Let me ask you, what will really teach us to confess our sins to God every day, honestly and humbly? Well, I put it to you that our clear vision of Jesus is what will do that. A clear vision of Jesus as John presents him to us. What will really lead us to a newness of life is as we see and, and listen to God and, and live his way. Well, it will be seeing clearly and listening clearly to the majesty of Christ. That will do it. What is it that will really begin that, that second volume of our life? Well, it's Jesus baptizing us with the Holy Spirit, just as he promised. And so for that reason, I, do, I want us to go away hearing the clear call of John to repent. I want us to go away with that. But I don't want us to go home just imagining that somehow what, that what we need to do is just get better at confessing our sins or, or get better at trying to change because extra effort on its own is not enough. It will not succeed. What I really want us to go home today with is a clear vision of Jesus. The one who came after John, the Lord himself, the one who was more worthy, the one who, who baptizes with the spirit and fire. The one who is God's harvester, the one who is God's son. I want you to go home knowing that you have that. You have a much more powerful and compelling reason for repentance. Christ is king and so all must repent. And Christ is saviour so all can repent. And be forgiven. That's the gospel. That's the message that God has for the whole world. And for the people that we know and love who've never truly repented of their sins, this is the thing that they need most of all. This is more important, this is more urgent than everything else. And for every unbeliever, this is the thing that they need to do in life above all other things. And I'm deeply conscious that as I speak to you today, there might be some here, even in this room, especially in this room, who need to hear that as well. If you've never looked at Christ, if you've never seen his kingship and confessed to God your failures to live as he wants you to live, if you've never resolved to live your life differently in a way that pleases your creator, this is the thing that God calls you to hear and to attend to. And I hope and I pray that you will do that and even do that today. But of course, this is a call that every believer needs to keep hearing and attending to as well. Because repentance is not simply the, somehow the gate through which we enter into the kingdom of God and the Christian life. It's also the road along which we walk. 
right through to our journey's end. And I think that this passage contains a a kind of stinging reminder to us that we must not neglect this essential dimension, this essential responsibility of our discipleship. And so I call on all of us to repent, to make the way of Jesus straight in our lives and the rough way smooth. For the glory of Jesus outshines and outstrips the glory of John. And because the joy of salvation in Jesus has come and it is available to us right now. And so as the old Anglican absolution for morning prayer says, may the Lord grant us true repentance and his Holy Spirit that we may do now what we do now may please him and the rest of our lives be perfect and holy. Amen.